0: Janina. Hi Emma. It's been a while, how are you? It's been a really long time, I'm alright, how are you? I don't know, where does time go? It just slides away. Yeah. Well you know it, we're like oh we'll do an episode in November and then I feel like Christmas happened and then all of a sudden it was the end of January. Everyone else complains about January being really fast and I'm like ugh, (laughs) Um, no just time flies Um, when you're ludicrously busy which is what all three of us have been.
1: It, it turns out sometimes time just disappears and no one knows where it went.
0: It does. Oddly enough, that's one of our questions from this week.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so we are sorry that we've been absent and also we're going to be a bit kinder on ourselves this year and not be around quite so much. We're going
0: to cut down to an episode a month, basically. So it's going to be the second week of every month, um, the second Thursday, you'll get an episode. Yep. Um, We will do
1: our best for that to be accurate. (laughs) But you know what? Sometimes we fail.
0: (laughs) I mean, we will indubitably fail because life gets in the way. Yes. We do our best. But hopefully that means that we will be less stressed about it and we'll have even more time to research the episodes. So hopefully they'll be (laughs) just as good, I guess, because they're obviously brilliant.
1: Yeah. (laughs) That's (laughs) that's the aim anyway. Uh, After all that, we should probably remind people... If what it is we do because it's been such a long time
0: yeah what is it that we do Janina well we answer people's history questions that they can't be bothered to research for themselves they send them to us and we research them for them yay that's very kind of us you're very, it is yeah you're very lucky to have us they are very <laughs> lucky to have us everybody should be, should be very grateful for every minute that they get to be fair poor Connor and my partner yep. spent like the last month going when is there going to be another episode <laughs> <laughs> Um, and also, who are we is a good oh, question. Right. Yeah, that thing. So you are Janina Mathieson, writer, podcaster, author of books, celebrated writer of Within the Wires podcast, co-writer, and now head and co-writer of extremely popular BBC podcast Murmurs. Yeah, they, they're, they're, sure. Sure. Sums it all up. Reviewed today in The Observer and called excellent several times.
1: <laughs> That's all that matters. We can ignore everything else and just see the repeated word excellent. The repeated
0: word excellent yeah. attached to your <laughs> name. So, yeah. That's my favourite. You can just part. pop that on a t shirt, Excellent The Observer. Mm-hmm. And yeah. nobody can judge you for it.
1: I can. I can pull out. one One time I gave a film a one star review and the PR for it still managed to use a pull quote. <laughs> in their marketing. So what was the pull quote? The pool quote was, Emma Thompson is a national treasure, which is true, but the film was bad. It was very, very bad and I gave it one star.
0: One of my like secret in my head hobbies is licking. You can't really do it with book quotes anymore because book quotes are really long these days, but mm. you used to be able to do it with them and with film quotes is writing a sentence around the pull quote that is actually a criticism. So the you know, if it's just as excellent and you could be like this film had the potential to be excellent, but unfortunately mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. let down every way
1: or even it could have just said this
0: film was anything but excellent yeah, exactly <laughs> and you can like the, the longer the phrase you get, obviously the better it is. but um you can't do it with book quotes anymore though book quotes are all like three sentences long these days. I
1: mean, I just think that that makes it all the more like interesting when you see one that isn't <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: Why does this run on for a paragraph in itself? My favourite current one—it's well, not that current anymore—but is one from Stephen King, who will blurb anything, but has basically given up on giving more than two sentences. So, if Stephen King says he likes something, he hasn't read it; like he just doesn't. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. He he will blurb anything that comes across his desk, but he just had one for a guy called C.J. Tudor, and mm-hmm. just said, "If you like me, you'll like this." <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, uh, anyway that's my day Stephen job
0: King this is my night job which is history we don't have a one question today Janina we have about nine questions because we're doing short answer question day yep start the year off with something quick and fun quick and fun yeah where we'll only say it's more complicated than that maybe twice I
1: don't know I'm assuming we'll say it for every question to be honest <laughs>
0: <laughs> alright let's get stuck in question one comes from at the OGB on Twitter, I think asked us another question, but I don't remember now mm. I've always wondered about city states I don't fully understand how they existed separate from countries, which is a question I'd never really thought about to be honest
1: but it's a good it is it's a good question because it does come up, and I think if you haven't learned much about geography over time,
0: yeah, the trick to this question lies in the concept of the state and the concept of the country. And then the wider concept of a nation. So a state is a political region that is autonomous, that exercises control over a population, basically. So a state can be small thing, like a city, or it can be a big thing, like a country. Most countries are states, but not all of them. So Scotland is a country, but it's not a state because it is governed by the wider state of Great Britain. And basically city-states existed in the past because in order to exert power over a population or a geographical area that is bigger than basically as far as you can travel for one day on a horse, it's really, really hard. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) It takes a huge amount of resources and infrastructure and military power and force basically to be able to exert the will of a central government over a space wider than where they can get to quickly.
1: Yeah, so the like idea of countries formed like is really quite—it's very neat. modern, It's very very modern—and a lot of that I think came about. And this I think is clear if you listen. If you listen to favorite podcast of the podcast Ricks Factor, <laughs> um, it becomes quite clear because in England, I think. An older than normal country, but it's still hard to pin it down. Is. But you can hear how it became England, yeah. like from being these separate regions, and a lot of that is because one person ended up sort of inheriting two places, so they became his domain and that sort of thing. And there was intermarriage, and there were promises to give your region to some other king if you died rather than to your son. Yeah, and peace accords and all that sort of stuff going on that slowly meant that it was brought in under the one. Umbrella of England, which I think is kind of debatable when it, when that happens as well. Like, who
0: was the first true king of England that is kind is. of a debatable point. And um, then the kind of border settlement takes a long time as well. See, England is interesting because it never had city-states, really, because it's too yeah. small. What it had was kingdoms instead. And a kingdom, so a city-state has a central urban area which is where the city-state is focused on. So Athens is a city-state because it has Athens and then it has this kind of surrounding rural area, but the centre is Athens. And, you know, the Vatican City is a city-state uh, because it has the Vatican City. <laughs> I like Vatican City. I didn't actually realise this until... I
1: like I, I didn't realise until I went to Rome that Vatican City is its own state,
0: separate from yeah. Rome. Technically, one day they could make you show your passport to go, like, just cross yeah. over the road. <laughs>
1: I didn't realise how that had happened until reading about this. and I, Because Rome was a city-state right up until 1870, and mm-hmm. it was ruled over by the Pope. But the King of Sardinia, Victor Emmanuel II, just rocked up and decided to take control. And the Pope at that point just shored up the Vatican and was like, no, you can't have it. Um, <laughs> but then that meant that everyone inside the Vatican couldn't leave because Rome, the Rome surrounding them now belonged to this other kingdom um so they declared the pope declared himself and everyone in there with him vatican prisoners and that state status remained until 1929 (laughs) so for 60 years until mussolini negotiated a treaty that said the vatican would be recognized as an independent state within rome and that they could come and go through rome as
0: they pleased which is kind of a wild journey but it makes me really happy (laughs) But every, as you know, for the anti episode, there's so much going on with the Vatican. that um, So much going on. That is so fun. Yeah, we still do have city-states today. Like Hong Kong is a city-state. It's an mm-hmm. or, like, mm-hmm. autonomous region, semi-autonomous region within the wider country of China. Qatar, Malta which I realised um, I was going through earlier about questions and I found that we've got a question about um, Malta, the history of Malta. So I'm looking mm-hmm. forward to that one. The easiest way to think of, of city-states, I think, is to think of them in the same way that like American states exist, whereby they are a kind of a small but autonomous entity that exists within a wider... Context. Um, So if you're thinking of medieval city states, for example, or Athenian city states, such as where I always tend to go with it, like they all know that they have this kind of wider thing which connects them, like. They all consider themselves to be Hellens in Greece, but they also all consider themselves to be autonomous parts within that in the same way that American states all consider themselves to be autonomous regions like I am a Texan and these are my Texan laws or I am a New Yorker and these are my New Yorker <laughs> laws. But they all agree that they are under the wider umbrella of American
1: this is we go into that a little bit in our episode on World War One, because that was yeah. part of the crisis of German nationalism that a lot of places in Europe had sort of evolved into countries that had a really strong sense of national identity. And German city states hadn't really had the same organic process. So had this fight to decide what it meant to be German, which ultimately yeah. led to uh, genocide which is a shame but
0: <laughs> yeah you can listen to our episode on the Sword of long join us for more about that but uh, yeah the interesting thing with that period of world war 1 as well as when you read about when world war 1 started you realize how late the concept of a a country that exists separate from its ruler is in Europe mm. the the idea that like treaties can be made between countries as entities rather than between kings which is surprisingly late, but mm-hmm. that is, that's a different topic for a different time. But yeah, but city-states are just like tiny countries, basically, that exist before a country can exist because the resources yeah, just aren't there to spread power further than beyond the, that geographical area. Generally, it means that there is because there is a lack of the ability to, to feed an army further than a couple of days away, essentially which is why they get empires and empires will come and squish everybody because they can um, feed their army a month away.
1: Hmm. The next question is from Matty. Is the whole map slash borders of empire a much more modern thing that scholars just pondered where the borders were and decided or guessed the limits on where one ended and the other empire started? So how did our definition of empire borders
0: happen? So they're actually very specific in the ancient world, across the ancient world, about where borders end. Um, In Europe, natural borders are used quite frequently. So there's a lot of rivers and forests across continental Europe that are super useful as borders. So you can say for a long time the Roman Empire ended at the Rhine, like, and then at the Danube, so from the Rhine to the Danube, and then getting across those two things was... Too much of a struggle. (laughs) But also most empires use border markers of some kind. For the Romans, they're called limes for no good reason because the Romans didn't call them that. And I have no idea why people call them that, (laughs) which are just border stones that they would put into the ground in a long line and say, that's the border. If you cross over that and you're wearing trousers, then you can go fuck yourself. And they were pretty specific about it. Like Hadrian's Wall was a border... That said, this is the furthest limit of the Roman Empire, and we're pretty happy about how far this has got. And then, a couple of emperors later, they built the Antonine Wall, which is about four foot high and made of mud. And they went down. This is the border.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there were, I think, there were deliberate expeditions for this sometimes as well. And I should have researched this properly, but I only just remembered it. And the reason I remembered it is because a few months ago, I watched a horror film. C- <laughs> In this sort of situation, somewhere in Finland or around that sort of area, where basically a cartographer was sent with the army to try and decide and map out exactly where a border should go. And then it's a horror film, so horror stuff starts happening. So, excellent.
0: Yeah, that sounds <laughs> it's great. It's very
1: good. And I can't remember what it was called. <laughs> um, it was in. We'll find out when it believe, was finished. It in the
0: notes. <laughs> Some of my favorite things are border steely from middle eastern empires because they're one they're very very old and that's very cool and two because they tend to be quite bitchy so like ancient egyptian empires and mesopotamian empires were very keen on border steely, and they would put like the whole story of how this basically it's a big lump of rock where they had carved they would carve the whole story of how this came to be about on it essentially Mm -hmm. so like in the 17th year of the reign of X, there was a big war about who owned this acre of land and then X said Y and Y said Z. And after X amount of people died, we decided to put this up in order to denote where the exact line was between the two of us. And you can see some of them in the British Museum. There's one between the border of Lagash and Umar. And the good thing about quite a lot of like Mesopotamian cultures is they're very wordy. So they do like to put the whole story on there. And they also like to put up border steely with the law codes written on them or like a an abbreviated version of the law code so that you'd know if you were crossing into this territory and this is what the laws of this territory are. Mm-hmm. Which is good because that's how we've got quite a lot of law codes. <laughs> but I like that as a like, it's like an informational sign. Like yeah. when you cross over the border here and you go down south and you like basically you get a little sign that says that everything is in kilometres now. Yeah. Or when people come off the boat in Dover, there's loads of signs that say, please drive on the left because people yeah. forget. And it's basically like that. Like, this is what the deal is now. Yeah. There's you I over think here.
1: it's worth remembering that borders, I mean, they are still contentious things, but they are sometimes like a lot of it is what do the people who live on this land, what do they feel about who they are in relation to the countries that that border could be on? Either side of so there are people in the Crimea, for example, who feel very strongly Ukrainian, but there are also people in the Crimea who feel very strongly to be Russian, and that's why there is conflict. You know, and I think
0: now we get into the concept of a nation.
1: Well, yeah, but which is not quite, (laughs) which is different to a a country, but related. Like the, you know, how do you decide what is part of a nation? Part of that decision is who lives there. Yes, and how
0: do they feel? And they almost never agree. Yeah, it's a problem. (laughs) It is a problem. The classic way of thinking about nations is like the Crimea, not the Crimea, like Crimea, but also the Yoruba nation of West Africa, Mm. who are 44 million people in West Africa who used to have a nation. And then the colonial... Powers came along and devi- drew country lines basically straight across mm-hmm. them. And now they inhabit Nigeria and Benin and Togo and a couple of other places and exist as the Euroban nation, but within the country of Nigeria. Yeah. And the, the border apparently gives no shits about them. So,
1: yeah. And I mean, a lot of that happened in India and Pakistan as well. There used exactly. to be a whole lot of kingdoms in there. And then the British just claimed a lot of it, did a partition and uprooted all these people who had belonged to a kingdom that was had an identity and that we just trampled all over basically
0: yeah modern borders i suspect are a lot more because we can use computers and things and satellite mapping to say that a border goes in this exact six inches of space <laughs> mm-hmm. is where getting what more specific than I suspect that they used to, but they did use border stones and you can see the border stones and, like, I mean, they're all in museums now like, they dug them all up and ruined it, but <laughs> <laughs> it's interesting that they they are quite physical and specific mm. places. They're not, they're probably more physical than they are now, particularly in Europe where we don't go across border architecture very often. As I I live in Northern Ireland, going down south is you do. There's no architecture, and also the border literally goes through people's houses. (laughs) And I've been to went to my friend Seanine wedding, and I think that we cross the border two or three times between like just driving from the wedding ceremony to the reception venue, (laughs) which is basically on the border, and it's just it's not a physical. It doesn't exist physically. Yeah. Because it doesn't exist in forts and walls and border stones anymore. Yeah. All right. Hopefully that answers that question. (laughs) (laughs) Next question is from Ed. And this is actually a question that we've had for ages and I just refound it. So sorry, Ed, it took so long. (laughs) It seems that a lot of English words have their roots in Latin. Does Latin have roots? To which the answer is yes. It'd be a bit weird if it had sprung fully formed from (laughs) the earth, to be fair. But it does. And you can trace it. This is kind of your deal. You love linguistics.
1: Yeah, I mean all all languages come from somewhere that goes back further than we can possibly trace them because yeah. they language developed before like in prehistoric times basically and grew out of that. So what you get is there is there's an entire field of linguistics devoted to this, which basically tries to trace ancient languages by analyzing modern languages and trying to find which ones share enough common ground that they might have a shared root and trying to trace where that came from. And they're called proto-languages. And they, there's quite a lot that people have like tried... To, like It's obviously all well, speculative. We'll never have proof. But they've figured out things like what types of sounds this, a language has, like if it has lots of plosifs or if it has lots of fricatives, which are different sounds that exist in a language. So there is a proto-Italic language which itself is developed from a proto-Indo-European language. The oldest proto language that we've kind of has been researched is a proto-Afro-Asiatic language which was spoken 15,000 years ago and then led to basically a lot of other languages today. I mean obviously all language comes from something that existed thousands and thousands of years ago, but that's what they yeah. are called. So we can never Recover. So, yeah, you had a Proto-Indo-European, which then devolved into lots of different things, one of which was Proto-Italic language, which then again evolved into lots of different things. And there we start to get things that we can actually trace a bit more clearly.
0: Yeah, and we can trace the old Italic languages. So the languages that existed alongside early Latin and then evolved into Latin through the Italians are always very big on inscription throughout Italy, so we know that there are quite a lot of old italic languages like Etruscan, which is the very big one like Roman culture is essentially evolved is Etruscan culture which evolved a bit. Uh, <laughs> and the etruscans have kind of been forgotten because the romans were so big but that's where like so much of roman culture came from and then falascan and umbrian is very big and oscan which is massive there is a, a great scholar called Catherine McDonald who has written a lot on etruscan and oscan and who is a delight and she's on twitter and she you can follow her for more stuff about that but they were all languages that were spoken and were also written and we have do have inscriptions and epigraphs and epitaphs and things in old italic alphabets which are the etruscan alphabet the oscan alphabet the Lepontic alphabet and the south piscine alphabet which are all clearly the basis so they have like a b c k m n like letters which are in the latin alphabet and they all derive when you follow them back from west greek which is a kind of I suspect the Greeks would say butchered Greek alphabet. <laughs> so from when the Greeks, there's a lot of uh, ancient Greek, what would you call classical Greek colonization of Italy. And they eventually lost like their lang- Their alphabet morphed from classical Greek to West Greek. And when you follow that back, obviously it goes back to Greek. And when you follow that back, it goes to Phoenician. Mm-hmm. And the Phoenician alphabet is considered to be in, in the ancient world, certainly, and kind of now but as a kind of turning point in writing like everybody really fucking loved the phoenician alphabet and it just really had a massive influence on the world and writing and that itself comes from proto-syniatic and by the time you get into where proto-syniatic came from we are at 1800 years bce and you're in middle kingdom egypt and then before that it's basically hieroglyphs mm-hmm. <laughs> And that is, uh, that's about as far as I'm willing to go back. Then you start getting back into proto languages, which get complicated and are beyond me. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I have no idea how, like, I can't even imagine the sort of like staring at things, trying to find connections that, can't, that you have to do to try and figure out a proto language. It's wild. No,
0: they're always quite fun when people write them down and you see like how the word Tuesday or whatever appears in all <laughs> of these different languages in different forms and you're like, wow yeah um, or like i cannot now can't think of any good examples but if you google it then you'll see that like proto indo-european there are certain words which just appear in all these languages and they're all clearly identical and you're like mm. huh god isn't the world cool yeah it's really cool but yeah but latin is develops out of old italic um which develops out of greek so which is why it is alphabet, cause alpha, beta. Yeah, which very cleverly I didn't actually didn't do this on purpose. I just did this in order of how they were. <laughs> Brings us on to question four,
1: which is yeah related. To, this is Hayley who emailed us, uh, and this is what. How much do we know about what ancient languages really sounded like?
0: I like this question because there are people who again have dedicated their entire career to analysing languages and misspellings, particularly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> in order to it's like a little detective story yeah. to be fair all history is like but I couldn't do this because I don't have the patience for it but for ancient languages putting together how they are spelled how they are pronounced and what they might sound like is basically from how they're written down and then trying to work backwards so you can look at the Romans and the Greeks particularly were really strict on poetic meter mm-hmm Um, So you can work out vowel sounds by where they fit into the poetic meter. So if the poem, like if you had a limerick, for example, and you know what the meter of a limerick is, like there once was a woman from whatever, (laughs) then you can, if you know that you're looking at a limerick, then you can see where the long and the short vowels are in that. So then you can say, okay, so this word must be, that vowel is pronounced like that. They also... The Romans especially were very big on like uh, (laughs) self-analysis and writing about themselves. So they wrote things like grammatical handbooks where they told us things like Quintilian, who is a jurist, tells us that uh, he really hates the letter K and he thinks it's a waste of everybody's time because C already does the job Mm -hmm. and there's no time According to Quintilian, when you need to use a K, the K is not really technically in the Latin um, alphabet. There's no time when you need to use a K because you can always use a C and C looks nicer anyway, which tells us that C is never soft and is always hard, mm-hmm. which means that we're mispronouncing Latin all the time because yeah, that means I can't, it's Cicero. I can't
1: deal with it. You always, like, it just <laughs> wigs me out. It's not Kikaru. Kikaru? That's ridiculous. <laughs> can't I can't be doing with it. <laughs> Kikare, Kaiser. I did notice actually when I was playing, and obviously this is Greek, not Roman, but in um <laughs> and I know I bring up this game a lot, but in Assassin's Creed, obviously, <laughs> it does spell everything with a K.
0: Yeah. Which I found really interesting. And it, some people do, um, in order to be like really specific, mm. but you know, we know we're mispronouncing it. You just, you, that's fine. Uh, we're mispronouncing pronouncing everything. Yeah. We call people all kinds of weird things. No one ever called Pompey Pompey, but we do anyway. <laughs> Romans also really conveniently wrote, like to take the piss out of bad pronunciation. So in these grammatical guides, they would also put things like, or bad spelling, but they would take the piss out of people. Like, oh, some people, you always know that someone's from, I don't know, Umbria when they say ostia instead of hostia. Mm-hmm. And then you can kind of get an idea there. But also misspellings are a really big thing with scribes. So this is how a lot of Greek has been put together as well, which is to look at where scribes make common mistakes. So if they commonly switch to where, like commonly misspell a word or commonly switch to letters, mm-hmm. then we can assume that those letters are the same or have a similar pronunciation. Like the best example I could come up with was... People in America often say "nipped in the butt" mm-hmm. instead of "nipped in the bud," or "on tender hooks" instead of "tender hooks," yeah. and they will, that's what they will write. And if you, well, the one who, that likes,
1: um, has gone around on Twitter a couple of times is the "you've got another
0: thing coming" instead of "you've got another thing coming." Exactly, mm-hmm. and from that you can get that the in American pronunciation, T and D have very similar sounds Mm -hmm. and k and g have like similar sounds at the end of words and you can kind of put that together and you have to take all of these tiny little things loan words are another way so when latin borrows greek words or greek borrows asiatic words and they then put write them in their own alphabet they will give you an idea of what a letter sounded like because if they're saying you know if this letter is appearing as a ph then we assume that that letter in greek sounded like a but you have to take all of these teeny tiny little Mm. mistakes and things that people bring up from across the entire corpus of latin literature and graffiti is a good one because you people nobody spells things right in graffiti and kind of and then make a stab at it essentially
1: you can also look at try and look at the physical movement of a language so the best guess at what old english sounds like for example is that it sounds like newfoundland accent which is a super far east settlement in canada that was settled really aggressively by people from england in i don't know 1500s <laughs> or whenever that was happening i didn't look up dates Who cares about dates? Um, And then that region (laughs) was really isolated. So the accent didn't have a lot of external influences to push it in one way or another, the way other Canadian accents did because of more migration from different areas. So I believe in Canada, the Newfie accent is rigorously mocked a lot of the time. (laughs) (laughs) But it's a really interesting little pocket but it's also a thing where there probably were a lot of different dialects, just like there are today of ancient languages. Yeah. So there probably was not just one way of saying anything.
0: This is the thing with that. And so there's this really good YouTube channel that I really like, which is called Native. But so it's Native without the E, so N-A-T-I-V and then L-A-N-G. And that has lots of examples of how ancient languages have been reconstructed mm-hmm. in like seven minute videos and then examples of spelling of what they might have sounded like, which is very fun. Yeah.
1: It's always interesting to think about with approximations we have with reconstructions, rather, we have Hebrew, which was an ancient language that had was de- it was a dead language that was reconstructed from scratch yeah. to be spoken as a modern language and you can look at related languages like Aramaic to try and figure out what ancient Hebrew sounded like but it probably didn't sound all that much like like what modern Hebrew sounds like yeah
0: in the same way that ancient Greek didn't sound much like
1: exactly you know, my current modern Greek modern Greek although that had a organic journey through time more so than Hebrew did because it was cut off and then started again
0: if you listen to the ones on native lang and things like that, then you have to remember that what you're listening to is like the RP received pronunciation yeah. kind of Queen's English, 1950s BBC version of the Roman world, yeah. whereby you're, you've got Romans who are very upper class and very educated, being like like the kind of people who wang on about split infinitives now,
1: <laughs> in Oxford commas,
0: laugh at you if you have any accent that isn't their bizarre one, or Mm-mm. don't know the strange pronunciation of upper class English, then you are listening to a very specific dialect of it. And all of the other ones are effectively lost. But except through things like misspellings and graffiti, because the thing is that things like nipped in the butt and damp squibbed instead of dense squib and mm. another think coming and thing coming and all of that is that they are now like they're the ones that people are actually using and they may not be quote-unquote uncorrect, but if they're in use, then they are a dialect of English and therefore you can go fuck yourself.
1: It's a thing that I'm always like torn over because half of me is there going, isn't it so interesting that this phrase, this common phrase has evolved beyond any meaning um, and the other half of me is going, how can you think that that's what it is? It does not make any sense. <laughs> <laughs> Neptune
0: the butt, what does it What mean? does it mean? <laughs> because just people use it and they know a kind of unconscious gut level that this is the time when you use it and therefore what it what the context of its meaning is but then if you actually think about the words all together you're like yeah no it doesn't mean anything at all (laughs) okay so question five is from josh moore Mm -hmm. and this is a really fun question i enjoyed reading this one what was the english sweating disease I love this too because we just we we don't know.
1: We have no idea. It's a complete mystery. This wedding disease was only there's only documented cases documented cases for about seventy years. It just appeared and uh, was awful, and then stopped.
0: Yeah, although people think that it's related to all these other European diseases that have different names, where it seem to have like similar symptoms. Mm. But there's like Tudor. Epidemic, so 1485, 1551, people suddenly got really sick and then would start getting fevers and weakness and vomiting and headaches and lost the ability to breathe. What's called, and this is a clinical term, agonal breathlessness. <laughs> it's very And good. a horrible rash and a lot of sweating, which I'm assuming is what caused the, to quote uh, somebody from the 16th century, loathsome putrid vapors mm-hmm. that emerged from the person and then they either died or got better and it had a mortality rate of 30 to 50 percent it's not great it's not great and it scared the hell out of people it also had some really great names do you want to know some of the names I of it absolutely do so it's known generally as the english sweat or the english sweating disease but in the time it was also known as the sweat the swat sure pseudo anglicus uh, classic uh, <laughs> the new acquaintance which it- i like it's very good. It's very, like, euphemistic. We can't admit it that is. we've an illness. It's to just town. an acquaintance. Uh, this is my absolute favourite because I have no idea why anybody would use this in conversation. Stoop, knave, and know thy master. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And stop, gallant. <laughs> Which is great (laughs) And apparently those two last two Are because it hit the upper classes really hard And not just the poor Mm -hmm. So the poor would say Like would use it as a way to say That it was a way of bringing down the upper classes And showing that they were human Like everybody else basically Mm -hmm. Sure that makes sense So there have been lots of suggestions Over what it is There seems to be a kind of general consensus these days As to what it is I found one guy suggesting that it was anthrax Which I really like (laughs) Because he's like, I've got no proof and uh, no one else has ever said it was anthrax. But I reckon if we exhumed some of the bodies, we could maybe have a look. Uh, (laughs) Sure. Lots of people thought there was just kind of general, quote unquote, influenza. Mm-hmm. Before the germ theory of medicine was popular, there lots of people thought it was just some kind of poisoning from eating too many sausages or from bad grain. Man, wouldn't it be awful if eating sausages could make you sweat yourself to death?
1: That would be mm-hmm. what a world.
0: But uh, there is does seem to be a general a general consensus in the literature these days that it is probably some kind of hantavirus, mm. um, specifically hantavirus pulmonary syndrome. Which you get from breathing in particles of rodent pee and poo. Mm, so don't eat your rat's poo, and you probably or live won't. too near them. So yeah. probably move out of London, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> oh no! <laughs> yeah, so I looked up the symptoms of hantavirus pulmonary syndrome on the CDC website. And the symptoms of that are sudden fatigue, fever, aches, headaches, followed by shortness of breath, nausea, vomiting and abdominal pain with a mortality rate of 38%. It's not great. It's not great. <laughs> but it does sound very much like... Yeah. The, we have quite detailed descriptions of the of English Sweating Sisters disease because everyone was really weirded out by it. And there's a couple of, of men... One of which wrote a book called A Chronicle at Large and A Mere History of the Affairs of England, which is a title I fully plan on stealing it's at some time.
1: Very, very good.
0: A Chronicle at Large. Mm-hmm. I don't know what it means, but I love it. Uh, <laughs> also, a Mere History. is great. It's a, a mere great history. collection of words. I don't. How can it be both a Chronicle and a Mere History? I don't I don't know. know. But I like it. Yeah. But we have all of these people who described like what happened and said things like putrid. Fevers and vapors and things But yeah But it was probably Some kind of antivirus mm-hmm. Probably
1: Until yeah, so someone comes up With a better argument
0: sure Without actual But it isn't anthrax It's probably not anthrax <laughs> It's probably not anthrax But I really like this This guy wrote a thing Saying that it was anthrax He's a microbiologist And there's, a, there's this journal Called Medical Hypotheses And it just seems to be a place Where scientists and doctors Can just put their Particularly deranged ideas <laughs> Like, just the things that they've come up with that they've got no real evidence for, but they just think it would be fun to if it was to write about it. <laughs> so they do, and this is where he put it. Yeah. Yeah, like, can't, prom- can't prove it, but here you go. And so I had, that's that's his thoughts. And it does end with him saying, I reckon we could, if we exhumed all these people, then we could have a bash. And, like, we can't just go around exhuming bodies and testing them. Like, that's so much work. <laughs> <laughs> the ludicrous idea that it might be anthrax. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but it killed a lot of people, scared the shit out of
1: them. Yeah. Henry VIII was terrified of it. He kept on fleeing London because he was so scared of getting this sweating sickness. Yeah.
0: People thought that it was like one of the worst things that had happened. And it yeah. was because we would come to town and then one person would get it. And before you knew it, everybody was down. And then 30% of people were dead. So that's English sweating disease. That is the
1: English sweating disease. No, no, not good is the... Not great. Is, is what Not was. great.
0: No one's favourite
1: thing. No. So our next question is from Stella Michelson. And the question is, was it Galop? I can't, you're going to have to say it because I don't, I can't say it. <laughs> Elagabalus. Sure. <laughs> Off you go.
0: <laughs> that wasn't his real name. His real name was Avitus. Elagabalus comes from the sun god that he worshipped. Why don't we keep the easy, easy name? Because he was kind of called, he worshipped a sun god, so he was Syrian, mm-hmm. um, and he worshipped the sun god. that was called Sol Invictus in Latin and Helio Galibus in in Greek, sure. and he presented himself as a kind of divine priest-king god mm-hmm. of the sun, which freaked the Romans out like you wouldn't believe. <laughs> <laughs> he was quite young when he became, he exists in this period, like right at the very end of the... Uh, the good Severan dynasty, whichever who everybody likes. Mm-hmm. And they're very fun. We talked about them before. If you remember, when we talked about Julia Mesa and grandmother who fought and got him and Severus Alexander to be emperors and they were pretty great. And, but he was about 13 or 14 when he became emperor and then went a bit off the rails he was sort of like well I'm the emperor now so go for yourself sure. and did whatever I mean, he wanted. Are, uh, he had he had some patterns to follow you know. He did and you know what if again I've said this before I'll say it again forever if I was 14 to 19 and someone had made me literal king of the known world <laughs> then I probably would have gone a bit deranged as well. Yeah I don't think anyone can blame him. <laughs> exactly so the reason that he is considered to be kind of a queer icon and he gets described as homosexual a lot he gets described as a transvestite and he gets described as transgender because of a couple of paragraphs from dio and one from herodian which just about survive okay i'm gonna read this to you Mm -hmm. so he was bestowed in marriage and was termed wife mistress and queen he would often this is a bit dodgy And to be questioned, I reckon he would allow himself to be caught in the act of adultery in consequence of which he used to be violently upbraided by his quote-unquote husband and beaten so that he had black eyes. Mm -hmm. When Aurelius addressed him with the usual salutation, my Lord Emperor, hail, he bent his neck so as to assume a ravishing feminine pose and turning his eyes upon him with melting gaze answered without any hesitation, call me not Lord for I am a lady. And then finally, he carried his lewdness to such a point that he asked the physicians to contrive a woman's vagina in his body by means of an incision, promising them large sums for doing so. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of description of him dressing up as a woman. He liked to go out in eyeliner and wearing silk. He shagged men constantly. He was considered to be dangerously feminine. And so there is this these sources which describe him as wanting to or describing himself literally as a woman and wanting a female Mm -hmm. sexual organs your main issue with this from my perspective is that to believe that Elagabalus described himself would consider himself to be trans in the modern world Mm -hmm. relies quite strongly on believing sources which are very hostile to him <laughs> and which have no real relationship with him to be describing accurately the things he did and said right so it's kind of tabloid reporting it's very much tabloid reporting they come from two sources one of which is sort of contemporary but which is epitomized so what we have is a it was kind of like a shortened version of it was written up several hundred years later and what we have is the short version. Mm. And one of which is is slightly afterwards. Both of which are very cross about the existence of Elagabalus, and neither of which are notorious for telling the truth about anything at all. I don't know that I would want to rely on a hostile third party. Mm. It's particularly within the context of the way that we talk about, or the way that Romans talked about feminine and things and feminization, yeah. is really problematic. And makes things very complicated because they think that there is a line between masculinity and femininity that is quite clear to them. Yeah, women are, are shit,
1: <laughs> basically.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and then also, he is Eastern and is presenting himself for a lot of the time as a sun god or a priest of a sun god or a divine godhead of some kind. And Easternness is seen to be considered as feminine and female, and difficult by the Romans. And also there is all this kind of very particular cultural narrative around Eastern men and women in Roman literature, which is linked to him wearing female clothing and that kind of thing, which is all Mm -hmm. a whole, like, mess of stuff to get into. And taking this at face value, you're like, oh, wow, yeah. He, like, describes himself as a woman and wants to have like his male body erased, Mm. but it requires you to take it very much at face value. And when you look at his other, see, this is the other, the other kind of problem with it, which is that there is, that's not the only source that we have for him. We do also have the material culture. So we have his statues, we have his coinage, we have his inscriptions and things like that, where he's not, painfully conservative because he does have all this sol victor stuff which is a real real wild card mm-hmm. and he puts stars on his coins which blows numismatists minds <laughs> like i can't even describe to you how much like if you read literature around the coinage they're like fuck like these stars on the back <laughs> of the coins that like, you wouldn't even believe it but it is you know he is clearly presented in a fairly traditional sense, he uses this traditional male Mars Victor and Sol Invictus and then his grandmother and later his wife get all of the female roles like Felicitas and all the rest of it and Concordia. And like when he is presenting himself publicly on traditional, in traditional means, he is not presenting himself in any kind of a non-traditional mm. way, if you see what I mean. Yeah.
1: It's one of those things where I think when we talk about stuff like this, and I think we delved into this a little bit in, on our episode on, I can't remember what the central topic was, but is this historical person a woman dressing as a man or is this a trans man? Where, like, it's really important, obviously, to find great examples of queer people in history because so many people who who are homophobic or transphobic use the lack of representation in the past as a sort of a beat, a way to argue against it. And we absolutely know that there have been LGBT people for as long as there have been people. But when you're looking at a specific person, you can only ever really, you never can know and you don't want to project a sexuality or a gender identity on someone and in a period of history where the sources are so scant and where people habitually were wildly out of line in trying to <laughs> discredit people that they did not like it's it's very very hard to pin down any truth <laughs>
0: Yeah. Also I think there is two different there are two competing narratives here which is the narrative of people who exist primarily in the modern world and who want a story about the past and who want to find representation in the past Mm-mm. which is one one approach and then there is the very my approach which is quite very academic which is like oh do we want to be anachronistic about it <laughs> we still have to interrogate the sources <laughs> exactly and maybe we should think about the really complicated would you want 1800 words on the very complicated <laughs> you know cultural meaning of the concept of Asianness, mm-hmm. and uh- <laughs> and they are competing and do not match yeah and I think that But the basic answer is we don't know. Like if you, we said this a lot about the kings and queens, like if you pick them up and put them now and gave them access to some writing about gender identity and the world that we live in Mm -hmm. now, then maybe he would have been a like expressed himself in a different way than the way he did within the culture that he lived in but we don't really have access to how he expressed himself we only have access to how people described him uh how his enemies described him as acting Mm -hmm. which is a completely different thing to how he actually acted so i don't know maybe It's very complicated Very, very She's complicated, complicated janina
1: and it's one of those things as well where i think like if you're asking questions like this it's completely valid to be like what are you looking for here like and i think i'm going to talk about this relating to fiction because i think it's a little bit less fraught but yeah i've seen posts arguing in favor of interpreting mulan as she isn't like the disney's mulan not mulan the historic <laughs> quasi-historical figure disney's mulan as a trans man which I think, if you want, if, if if what you want from that question is a character you identify with in your own journey and someone to be inspired by and, and someone to look up to, then that's great and go f- go for you and that's wonderful. But also projecting that onto everyone else is not necessarily great because then you have an idea where that because a woman does male coded things that means that she is actually a man, which is not always the case. With women, both trans women and cis women can also be awesome badass fighters and that's great yeah so I think it's perfectly valid to be like if you look at a person like Elagabalus want to be inspired I mean I mean he seems like he was pretty wild I don't know if he's particularly inspirational figure but if you want to be (laughs) built up by the idea that there was a trans woman in ancient Rome then and you you want that personal connection then I think that there's nothing wrong with that but if you want to be looking for what was the historical world like and what was this real person who lived in it like, then you have to be a little bit more rigorous in your investigation of it. Does that make sense? Did I just wank on about nothing?
0: Maybe. No, no, I think that's so true. And I think it is again about like the different approaches to the to the world and what you want from it and mm. um, whether you are finding something that is helpful to yourself or finding something which is whether you're trying to interrogate the ancient world from an academic perspective and take all the fun out of it (laughs) i think those things can coincide and i think yeah that that's fine yeah (laughs) thankfully the next question is much easier question (laughs) which comes from john freeman friend of the podcast john freeman has asked very simply why is greek mythology the sexiest mythology
1: yeah, it's because everyone was fucking.
0: So just fucking Every, all the time. Everyone fucking. Although when you read it, quite a lot of that fucking is non-consensual. Yeah, which is not so sexy. But so I thought I would Google sexiest mythology mm-hmm. just to see if they like, you know, what the Google consensus on sexiest mythology <laughs> was and literally all of the answers were, who well, is the sexiest Greek god.
1: <laughs> That's the thing. I mean, they had... To, I mean... Apollo, you know? You can't not be sexy yeah. when you've Adonis, got an Apollo. Come now. Yeah. Yeah, it's beautiful. Aphrodite. Aphrodite. Yeah. I mean, Artemis. Look at her yeah. go. It's amazing.
0: Yeah, so it's because they're always fucking. There's fucking so much. And then all of the statues of them, which are the statues that we all know, are they're nude. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it's very hard to see that there's any kind of, like, moral to any of the greek myth stories
1: <laughs> this is like yeah th- these are it's a he- the greek gods goddom is just a very hedonistic society <laughs> they're just drinking and fucking and killing
0: yeah the only moral that you should take from them which seems to be the entire point of them is that the gods don't give a shit about you no they they are different to you unless and they, they want to fuck you in which case yeah unless you're not gonna have a fun time You're not going to have a fun time and if you resist them then you'll probably be turned into a Medusa. Yeah. With snakes in your hair and you'll never be able to look at another man again because if you remember correctly Medusa gets the snake head turning people to stone thing because she runs into a temple in order to avoid being raped by Poseidon. Mm -hmm. And that's her punishment for resisting him. Turned into a monster. Yeah. Cool and great. It's not that sexy when you actually read it. It's not that sexy when you you get down to it. But... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so a lot of people being turned like people when i say people i mean human women mm-hmm. being turned into things and raped and assaulted and like dragged around against their will yeah. while gods are just like eh. yeah it's not great no Mm-mm. but yeah that's why it's because we fucking sexy it's all the six that's why yeah. it's sexy all right last question Got
1: one more from at Perilous Wood, who asks, "Is it possible we have lost many years over the last five thousand odd years? Like, how good is our ability to piece together calendars and history? So could entire years have just gone missing? And if so, how might we have lost track of them?"
0: No, see, I don't think there's necessarily any way to know this. Yeah, we but don't I find know. We the don't idea know. of lost years really creepy. Yeah, I don't know why. Do you want? You should write an episode about it. Oh, maybe. But I suspect that there's probably more than would be ideal. But thankfully, it's usually done from king lists, basically. So like five past 5,000 years of history, most societies yeah. kept king lists or ruler lists or lists of whoever was the archon or whatever and how long their reign lasted for. And from that, we can kind of compare them all <laughs> to one another, <laughs> which is a really boring task, and I'm glad that I don't have to do it. But I feel like German historians of the 19th century are really into this kind of thing and so that's how you do it which is that you get a king list from early kingdom Egypt and then you also have a king list from Sumeria, mm. and from those two things you can kind of put them together and then you have things like chronicles where they're so if you've got two different chronicles or king lists or you know annals of things that happened in the years that mention a comet or a solar eclipse solar eclipses are super useful then you can say okay so that's your point of reference Mm -hmm. and it's sort of like when we do this podcast when we both start recording we both do a clap so that oliver can match up the sound of the clap and then he knows that they're going to be together and that's the kind of calendar version which you go okay okay, solar eclipse happened in this year so we can put these two together and from that we know that the 17th year of x's reign was the 22nd year of y's reign and then we can move on and then you can see then you can find another point of confluence with another as i say very boring it sounds very boring yeah (laughs) but probably really boring i imagine it's like a lot like football where it's really really boring but then every so often you get like one moment where something happens and you're like oh my got a comet uh yeah. that's mentioned in this one and this one which is exactly the same as when somebody finally scores a fucking goal in football yeah that's everybody really gets true. very excited and thinks they enjoyed the previous 45 minutes <laughs> yeah it seems that seems like a fair comparison Yeah. So it's a lot of lows with the occasional high. But I do find the idea of lost years, like the the entire years of human experience might have just vanished into not knowing about them.
1: Because it would, it would have to be, that mean that that year wasn't recorded by all these different societies and what could cause that.
0: Yeah. Mm. Like, yeah, no, I don't know why I find that. So it is a bit creepy yeah <laughs> hmm. maybe i'll steal it for a book <laughs> please do perilous would also asked how accurate is 1917 because he remembered from i think episode one that uh connor really really hated wonder woman and turned mm-hmm. it off because he was angry which i find delightful but we haven't seen 1917 yet so yeah, I can not seen question. it yet
1: either we probably will see it I do feel like I have a thing where I just believe all white male film directors have a thing where one day they will make their war film and we just keep <laughs> indulging them even though they're basically all the same yeah
0: this one seems to be in the trenches again yeah. which is why i am not really I'm not super excited because I'm kind of
1: it seems to have the exact <laughs> same plot as Saving Private Ryan except it's set in World War One instead of World War
0: II and about British people instead of American people. I don't know, people. I'm kind of over trenches. I felt this about the, what's the one that Peter Jackson made with the colorized? Oh, sure, I don't know. footage. <laughs> they should never I'm, be, whatever. Yeah, never be forgotten or something. Something so yeah. like that. Yeah, But it was just all the trenches, and you're like, mm. well, this is just one very specific experience of World War One, and it makes it look like World War One wasn't World War One. it was just France and Belgium. Yeah. And you're like, okay, sure, Yeah, yeah I feel like they should be... Like what about literally all the rest of World War One? Yeah,
1: you know, I would just I would just take before we let another white male director make his <laughs> war film um that he's gonna I would just like one not made for T V, made for cinema movie about any woman in a war. Like Nancy Wake, please. I would like yeah. a Nancy Wake movie that is not made for T V. One day, please. Please. Okay.
0: One day we'll do what we can for yeah. you. Thank you. But yeah, but I haven't seen it yet. But when I do see it, or when Connor sees it more specifically, (laughs) I'll let you know. I think that's all our questions, Janina. I think it is. What are we talking about next time? Next time we have a question from Jennifer who emailed us. And said, would you do an episode on redheads in history? Mm. As a redheaded art historian, I've always had a special interest in the pre and how red hair became fashionable for a short while. And there are lots of weird myths and stories about redheads and people finding them deeply suspicious and also very sexy. Mm. Neither of us are redheaded, but still, no. as two brunettes, we sure.
1: I tried to dye my hair once. Uh, I tried to dye it red one time and
0: you just could not tell. I, <laughs> I spent a very long time with red hair that would fade quickly to orange and then I would just have bright orange hair mm-hmm. like in the fifth element because I was very lazy and couldn't be bothered. So <laughs> I would bleach my hair white and then put red on top of it and then was too lazy to re-bleach it every two weeks. Mm. So it would just be orange for most of my university undergraduate years. That's, I mean, I feel like that's what I would have done too. Yeah, it's, oh, it's such an effort. But <laughs> But we should talk more about that next time. Yeah. Um, Where can people find us, Janina, you, if they have questions
1: for us? People can find us
0: on Twitter at Sexy History Pod. Yeah. You can also find us on Facebook at Sexy Without the E History Pod. So mm-hmm. Sexy History Pod. You can email us at SexyHistoryPod at gmail.com. Or you can find all of the sources and things that we used and also for previous episodes and also give us three quid if you'd like us at. Kofi, which is, you can find at bitly slash support sexy history. You don't have thank to you very give much. us
1: three quid. You can just go look in the source at the sources if you want. You can want. Just go look at. The but if you but want us to be caffeinated, then you know we would appreciate. We you know we love
0: we love that. Yeah, yeah. we do. It makes me very happy when we get a little email that says someone that's supported nice. you on Kofi, and it, we go, oh, that's really lovely. It's just like someone enjoyed you to the tune of three quid. It's very very nice. Yeah, I thank you to everyone who said, has sent us a bit a bit of cash. Yeah. It's very lovely. Yeah. We appreciate every one of you. We do. Yeah, where where can people find you, Janina?
1: I am at j 9 if on Twitter and basically everywhere else. Yeah. And listen to Murmurs, which is very, very good. Yes, please do listen to Murmurs. If lots of people listen to Murmurs, then maybe they'll let me do more Murmurs, which would be nice.
0: Also, it ends... One of Janina's episodes ends in such a way that I very much need them to do more episodes (laughs) because I want her to write what happens next. So if you listen to that, it's very good. Um, Listen to it a whole day. Creep me out. Where can people find you? (laughs) You can find me at at Nuclear Teeth on Twitter Mm -hmm. and also pretty much everywhere else. And soon upcoming, you can find me on the next episode of Partial Historians who are an ancient history podcast working their way through Roman history. So I've done an episode about Agrippina with them. So, and finally, you can find lovely Oliver, who is going to have a whale of a time editing this episode, <laughs> <laughs> because we've had some technical issues. You can find him at, at @kiwa on Twitter and say hi, Oliver. Yeah. So we will be back in a month, and yeah, yeah, talking about redheads. Talking All right.
1: Redheads. Bye, Bye. Janina. Bye. Bye.